Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. My guest today is Mark Bailey. Mark is a histotechnologist and an associate professor of the School of Health Professions at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Today on the show, we'll talk about how Mark got into the histotechnology field. We'll talk about his teaching career, about some of his work with ASCP and NSH, and about his work in Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, here's Mark Bailey. Let's begin with how did you become interested in uh, histotechnology as a career? Well, I, I would have to say that uh, I had been I had interest in forensic pathology when I was in my late teens, early twenties. Okay, I was looking for something pathology related, but I really did not understand uh, uh, the separate field of surgical pathology. So uh-huh. I uh, I went to the human resources department at uh, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in in the mid 80s around 85 86 and they had a um, they had an opening in their uh, surgical pathology department for a laboratory uh, technician so I looked into it and I applied for the job and then uh, when I went to the interview the um, the manager at the time it was in the frozen sections lab the manager said that I was too overqualified for the position. And so I said, so what could I do, you know, that could, uh, you know, facilitate me eventually working in the Department of Pathology? And they said, well, it's interesting that you asked that because we're, we just are restarting the histotechnology program here at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And that program began in 1987. Uh, so what had happened is that originally, um, MD Anderson Cancer Center began a program uh, in histotechnology in 1949, and it went, uh, it was a uh, sponsored, uh, departmental sponsored program. It wasn't an OJT program because they had lecture and they had clinical rotations, and so and you graduated with a certificate. But from 1949 to 1980, uh, it, it stayed at MD Anderson as a department-run uh, program, and they took about four graduates a year. So at 1980, the University of Texas uh, School of Allied Health Professions, which was housed in the University of Texas Medical School, which is now called the McGovern Medical School and still affiliated with the University of Texas, they took all the department-run programs at MD Anderson, medical technology, cytotechnology, and histotechnology, they moved them over to the medical school. And that lasted for about five years until 1985 and when they just abruptly closed down all the laboratory programs. So what that meant was it meant that there was gonna be a vacuum of uh, no place to uh, resource uh, histotechnicians and uh, to work for MD Anderson Cancer Center. So uh, under the direction of uh, the academic affairs department at uh, at MD Anderson Cancer Center. When, so there, at the time, they were called the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer and Tumor Institute. So they decided to restart the histotechnology program beginning in 1987. I was one of the first cohorts of four students who started the second half of the his, history of the program. It was a 12-month uh, certificate program, and I, I finished. It was Monday through Friday. You went from eight to five, uh, five days a week. Uh, it was free tuition. Uh, we were paid a $300 stipend, monthly stipend, and we received free parking. And so upon graduation, I was, I was hired by MD Anderson. To, and I, I didn't go to into clinical uh, hit labs. I went into research labs. So from 1988 until about 1996, I worked for uh, in the Department of Pathology and worked with a a, a, a surgical pathology PI that was interested in um, ovarian carcinoma. So did a lot of uh, immunohistochemistry uh, and also a lot of retrospective studies. From there, I went to Baylor College of Medicine, which is a medical school across the street from MD Anderson, and worked in um, the molecular 
biology department and, and did um, worked on uh, transgenic mice. We were studying uh, retinoblastoma, worked there for about six years and learned, uh, in addition to my histology uh, skills, I also did um, molecular biology techniques. That was in the days when we, you actually did a southern blot and you had to extract the nucleic acids from uh, the tissue. Oh, sure. It was it was the uh, it was a really great place, MD Anderson and Baylor College of Medicine to really get a good basic science, biology, and chemistry foundation. As I was um, working for those institutes, I was also working on a bachelor of science degree. And uh, around 1996, I finished my bachelor's degree, and I became a biology an AP biology teacher. For about five years. And then I was recruited back to MD Anderson after I had finished a master's degree to work in um, the Department of Pathology again, working in frozen sections lab. At the time, it was an OJT pathology assistant position because it was prior to the change of certification when, at the time, you could submit uh, 150 grossing cases and 10 autopsy cases to AAPA and then become eligible for the PA pathology assistant um, certificate. This was prior before ASCP uh, had taken over the board of certification for the pathology assistant programs. So I did that for a year. And then while I was working in frozen sections, the, the program in histotechnology was under a new uh, department at at uh, MD Anderson called the School of Health Professions, which at that time they housed eight programs in allied health professions, uh, clinical laboratory science, molecular genetic technology, cytogenetic technology, cytotechnology, histotechnology, and then there was uh, four programs in radiological sciences. So anyway, when they found out that I had a master's degree, they asked me to become an education coordinator in the program. And so that was in 2004. And so I've been uh, a faculty member in the School of Health Professions since 2004. I was an education coordinator from 2004 until 2009 when the program director um, retired. And then I became the program director in 2009. So I'm in my 11th year as the program director. The original histotechnology program that you did in 87, 88, was that in H, HT or HTL? That was an HT. That was an HT, a histotechnician. So um, at the time, HTL was fairly new certificate. I think it was in 1983 when ASCP, uh, they offered the HTL certification, and which meant that the first cohort of people that went into that, that were, um, that were, awarded the HTL were actually grandfathered in. It was usually people who had been in the histology business for at least 20 years who had uh, managerial and educational backgrounds along with histotechnology. And so the HTL certificate is really what it is, is a lot of people ask me this question all the time. What is the difference between HTL and HT? Mm-hmm. So HTL is the same uh curriculum as far as the the techniques in the lab but in the addition of we had management education biorepository and um, more advanced immunohistochemistry techniques and also emphasis in um, uh, biopsy grossing and uh, enzyme histochemistry nowadays uh, you have to have the htl in order to get the immunohistochemistry qualification, don't you? Isn't that required now? No, actually, no, that's not true. Oh, okay. um, so you can get the you can get the QIHC uh, as an HT or HTL. It just depends on your uh, your experience. So I believe for the HT, and I might be wrong about this. I believe you have to have the HT certificate in a year and a year and a half experience in immunohistochemistry and have a supervisor or pathologist sign off on the application for the exam. 
And for HTL, I believe it's one six months experience. And then also uh, supervision, a supervisor has to sign off on the application. So, and that's also a difference between the HTL and HT is that the HTL, the sit for that exam, you have to have, you have to hold a bachelor degree with a minimum of 30 hours in biology and chemistry. So the HT is an associate's degree with minimum uh, hours of, I believe, 12 hours in biology and chemistry, or 15 hours, I think. When you did it, I know they don't do this anymore, but the um, practical portion of the exam, did they did they have it have that at the time you did it too, where you had to have? Yes, yes, I did. I uh, when I was uh, when I was when I was a student and I applied for the certification, you had to do the practicum, uh, and then you submitted the practicum, and then they they graded it at ASCP, uh -huh. uh, ASCP, BOC, and then you took the written test about a month after you did the practicum. But at the time. They hadn't worked out the mechanics of that yet is in regards to um, uh, there were they were having an issue where there was some candidates that would uh, submit their practicum and then uh, they would take the uh, the written exam. They would not pass the written exam, but they had this practicum sitting there that they passed. Right. So but, you know, in, in all the certifications, most of them uh, ASCP certifications. You have, I believe, up to five attempts that you're you're granted to eventually pass. So when right before they did away with the practicum, I think what they did is you they they reversed the process. You took the written exam and passed that first, then you did the practicum before you were awarded the certificate. But that all went away, I believe, in two thousand and four. I'm not I'm, two thousand four, two thousand seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that was. That was shortly after uh, when I did it, because I it might have been 2003, I think, when I did it. And I, you still had the practicum then. OK. Um, yeah, I think that was I think the the uh, they grant they phased it out in 2004. Okay. Uh, they did this for all certifications across the board. That's when they went to the um, the uh, certified maintenance program where, you know, each discipline has to have so many hours every three years to renew your certification. Mm, yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Something else I wanted to ask you about that you, you talked about a little bit. Did you do the, you started the on-the-job training, the PA training? Is that is that what you said? Yes. Yes. So this was before. So at the time when I came back, when I was uh, recruited back in 2003 to come uh -huh. back to MD Anderson, this is when AAPA and I believe ASCP Board of Certification we're in. We're beginning to discuss the way that AAPA was going to move the the uh, pathology assistants to uh, the only only one route in which you could get the right. certification. That was if you went through a NACRS approved program. And so at the time, I think there was one or two pathology assistant programs that was offering a Bachelor of Science. Uh, degree in pathology. I think Wayne University yes. was one of them. The remainder of them were master's degrees of programs. I think, and now all of them, they're master's mm -hmm. degree programs. And there's only one route. You have to go through the accredited NACLS program, and then you can sit for the exam. But I believe that didn't actually go into effect until 2007. So what, what what the plan was for me is that the one of the pathologists that I used to work with when I first started in 1989, uh, she was at the time, she was the chair of pathology and she she recruited me back to come back because they were interested in having somebody come back that was interested in pathology assistant work and then uh, began to systematically begin to increase their numbers in regards to uh, pathology assistance at MD Anderson. So MD Anderson, they do a lot of grossing and they relied mainly on the, the fellows to do most of the grossing. And they had uh, one full-time PA at the time. And then they hired me. I was in training. And then while I was there in training, they hired two more certified pathology assistants. And now I believe they have in the department, they have about six or seven pathology assistants. Now, 
And uh, so, but at the time it was, my, it was a plan that I would do the grossing. I would learn how to do grossing uh, side by side with a pathology assistant and a fellow, and then to do uh, some autopsies and then to get, and then turn in the cases to, uh, I believe, I don't know if it was AAPA that was sponsoring the exam or ASCP yet. Uh, but the problem was, is I was not able to get my autopsies in. So I had plenty of cases to submit for the um, the surgical pathology grossing, but the autopsies, I was I could not, uh, I couldn't get those. So when the School of Health Professions came and recruited me for a faculty position, I just said, well, you know, this is a really good opportunity to become faculty. And uh, I, I wasn't getting any reassurance from the um, pathologist in charge of the frozen sections lab that I would get my autopsies. So I decided to take a gamble and become a faculty member. And it really did pay off into a very interesting and exciting career. You know, I, I'd had five years. I'm a certified biology high school teacher. And so I just kind of extended my instructional techniques I learned in college to uh, teaching an HTL program. But fortunately, I had a good mentor for five years as a um, assistant professor and education coordinator before I was promoted to the program director. Uh, the last year as the education coordinator before the, the preceding program director uh, retired, is I basically was running the program as a program director. So it was a fairly seamless transition uh, to become a program di director. That's interesting to me because that's how, I mean, I did the on-the-job training for, for pathologist assistant. So, right. Um, yeah. So it's okay. very similar. And, and yeah, the autopsy part, that was, that was tough to do to get enough of those. <laughs> right. I really wish I could have, I could have done that. So I would have been grandfathered in, um, into the program, into, uh, as a pathology assistant, because I did quite a, you know, quite a few um, complicated or complex cases, you know, other than just biopsies. And it was a really good, you know, it was nice being paid to be taught how to become yeah. a pathology assistant. And I learned so much more about pathology that way. And it's really, it gave me another good foundation of becoming a program director, you know, that I could add one more layer of um, of experience, at least as a on-the-job trainee, you know, with all the grossing techniques that I did. So we we do we do in our program we have added biopsy grossing because um, I feel that you know uh, the BSHTL technologists nowadays they they come out of our programs uh, qualified to do the biopsy grossing, and it takes the load off of the pathology assistants having, you know, gives them another option to another person they can turn to as long as they're, uh, you know, approved by or qualified by CLIA to do the biopsy growth. And it gives the pathology assistants more time to uh, concentrate on the uh, complex cases. And, you know, so it's just another, I think, added benefit of uh, the biopsy grossing aspect of, of a uh, histotechnologist. Now, CLIA, you know, they really don't make it clear. They just basically give you, uh, you have to hold an associate's degree and so many hours of biology chemistry. And I think that, you know, I've always thought that, I've always felt that CLIA kind of, um, you know, their qualifications for all the lab personnel is under our standards, you know, for individual disciplines, you know, such as, you know, pathologists right. have a higher standard and histotechs right. and everybody. But, you know, I think, you know, looking at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, basically, when you look at that, they're ba they do that because of the lab shortage. So they don't make it unattainable for people who may have, you know, who have an associate's degree uh, that have experience uh, in a pathology setting that they can be, they're, they're eligible to do the biopsy grossing now. And, of course, they go, that differs from campus to campus, from lab to lab, from, you know, reference lab. You know, you have uh, smaller uh, rural communities or small towns that can't, you know, recruit a master's degree trained pathology assistant. You know, so they have to rely on people that meet the CLIA 
eligibility, but uh, you know, you know, with a two-year degree. And so it gives there's flexibility in that. And but I've always felt that I thought that CLIA, along with CAP, both of them kind of um I would say watered down the qualification standards of histopathology personnel. And it, I think that's uh, something I've always been disappointed in CLIA and CAP in regards to the qualification and personnel standards that they look at when they're doing their inspections. Sure, sure. I agree with that. Um, did you find that your uh, histology training, did that benefit you when you were doing grossing? Or or was it the opposite, like the, the grossing training, did that help you to be a his, being a histologist? I mean... Or, or was it both? No, I, I really think that the being a histotechnologist or histotechnician prior to learning pathology assistant techniques is an, a very big added benefit uh, into becoming a very seasoned pathology assistant uh, for a couple of reasons. And uh, for one is that you know, histotech, hist, histotechnology personnel they are used to managing tissue. So I always tell people that histotechnologists are experts in the management of the logistical side of the tissue uh, specimens. So because we, you know, the, we receive them, we log them in into the pathology system, and then we make sure that they uh, are on a schedule to be grossed on time without too much time elapsing so that you get optimal fixation. And then you do the frozen sections. And so there's so many parts of being a histo technology personnel that you have that good foundation of how surgical pathology operates. Then when you become, you advance to a pathology assistant, you can, you've already got the basic understanding of all the roles that are in a pathology, anatomical pathology department or surgical pathology department. And that way you can concentrate on learning the, the profession and complex techniques that pathology assistants are taught. So I think that going from histo into pathology assistant is really advantageous. Most program directors that I speak to uh, that are... Uh, with pathology assistants who are program directors of pathology assistant programs, they're usually their um, biggest applicant pool kind of goes in this order. It's histology techs, med techs, and cytotechs, and then some other folks in other lab background areas. And then you just have your applicants that come directly from like a biology or chemistry major from a university. So um, I think that's the percentage, you know, your histo slash cyto former, you know, uh, histotechs and cytotechs are the biggest applicant pool in the pathology assistant programs. At least the ones I've spoken to, that's what they tell me. But it could be different from each for each um, each different program because I think between the United States and Canada, there are approximately sixteen pathology assistant programs that are. Um, NACLs accredited are, are on their way becoming NACLs accredited programs. So, um, which is something that we've needed for a long time because for a long time, it used to be said there was no pathology assistant programs west of the Mississippi, right. you know, yeah. and now right. they've kind of spread out. Uh, you've got uh, one in um, Loma Linda University and then um uh, the uh, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston just opened one last year, and they're on their way to the accreditation process. So we're seeing more and more programs open up, uh, along with uh, also histotechnology programs. I, there are, I believe, five new HT programs that are in the works of being going through the accreditation process right now. So that will put us between... Between the HT programs, HT programs, there's about 30 NACLS accredited programs. In the HTL, the Bachelor of Science HTL programs, there's about 10 uh, NACLS accredited programs in the United States. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Um, it seems like, you know, the histotech 
histotechnician, histotechnologist, like that's a, that's a field that's high demand because there aren't many, yes. there, there aren't many around. And I think, do you think that's part of why there's more programs kind of popping up just to fill that need? Over the past 10 years, I, I was on the uh, council of lab professions with ASCP, uh, which led me to appointments on the task force on workforce lab personnel workforce committee. Uh, and, you know, you see a vacillation, the job availability kind of dropped for a while, you know, dropped below 10%. Usually the vacancy rate in histotechnology is between 10 and 15% annually. But the last five years, it hovered around five to 7%. And all of a sudden now, uh, we're getting ready to do another, uh, I'm on the uh, ASCP vacancy and wage committee, uh, you know, that when we, they come out with the annual reports every other year. Uh, and we're getting ready to look at those numbers again. I'll be interested to see what the numbers are. I have a feeling that we're seeing an uptick in vacancies because you have a, you have a generation of workforce folks, the baby boomers that are retiring. And so there, there's a shortage of histotechs based on generational generations retiring. The, the addition of uh, five more HT programs, uh, it just shows you that there is a shortage of personnel that are replacing uh, the ones who are retiring. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I can definitely see that just working out in, out in the field. There is a generation right there. Um, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned you, you're, uh, you're active with ASCP and I know you're active with NSH as well. Yes. Why was it important to you to get involved in these, uh, organizations? As an educator, I've always felt like, felt like the educators are the gatekeepers of a discipline. And so if the educators are not the advocates of the profession, then who's going to be the advocate, you know, because a lot, you know, most of your new trends, your contemporary trends that are introduced into uh, surgical pathology support personnel, they come through education first. They come through the researchers and the educators, and then the, it spills into the, uh, the clinical practice practitioners. So, I thought, you know, it was important to uh, first get involved at the state level in the Texas Society for Histotechnology. So I served as, as education chair for a couple of years with the TSH Society, and uh, which basically what they did is uh, kind of oversee, you know, local uh, outreach to the communities to encourage high schoolers to come for a professional uh, day to, you know, give them like the day in the life of a histotech. So I did. I moved from there to um, the lab, the Council of lab, Laboratory Professions, which is uh, it can be a three to six appointment. I only served one term because I had other obligations, and so I had to leave ASCP. But I I worked on the nominations. I'm on the nominations committee now, and also the the work the task force on workforce committee, and then uh, I served on the Siemens ASCP scholarship. Uh, committee for seven years, and then my my also my relationship with NSHN. I'm also a board director on NACLS, the accreditation group. So I just felt that you know I had a strong feeling that you know in order for um, the discipline to be known to people in general, instead of just folks accidentally finding out about it, it seems like you kind of a lot of you'll hear a lot of people say, oh, I just you know, kind of accidentally stumbled upon histotechnology because they'd never even heard of it. You know, they never heard of histology. I thought it was important that through these professional committees and through these collaborations, which I think is so important, ASCP, NSH, NACLS, and I now think, and now AAPA, I think that since that's all related to surgical pathology, you know, it's very important that we all collaborate I had this, you know, this long-term plan that I've been working on for a long time. And one of the ways I'm able to achieve that is collaborating with my colleagues 
you know, at ASCP, NSHN, and at NAPLS. And I have some friends uh, who are also involved with AAPA. And so, you know, just among uh, with my friends that are AAPA, uh-huh. uh, you know, just uh-huh. casual, casual conversations, you know, talking about what's the future of surgical pathology. And we definitely all agree that, you know, there needs to be some type of collaborative coalition that we can be a, a very strong voice for anatomical pathology, surgical pathology, forensic pathology, all of it together. Uh, and then I think it's very important for also CAP to be involved in it as well, since they're involved in the um, accreditation of clinical labs, you know, to be involved in knowing, you know, what is it that a well-educated histotechnologist is capable of doing with the introduction of new techniques, with the overlap with molecular genetic technology, you know, there, there's a lot of future for surgical pathology people in both uh, histotechnology and assistant pathology. Uh, I, you know, a couple come to mind is the biorepository. That's just, that's just become mm-hmm. huge, you know, to managing all the specimens and uh, uh, collecting uh, specimens for future uh, nucleic acid extractions and things like that. And so I don't I don't know if you're aware of this, but ASCP Board of Certification just last year now, or I think it was last April, yes, April 2020, or possibly April 2019, they offer another qualification exam called Qualification in Biorepository Sciences. Oh, yes, I've, so, I've heard of that. So, so you know, you can if you're certified in biology assistant, uh, an HTL, a medtech, cytotech. You can sit for that qualification, and uh, and it's really important. And one of the ways I learned why they were moving this way is because uh, with the advent of um, molecular genetic technology working in conjunction with the other lab disciplines, and and as far as uh, you know, sequencing the nucleic acids for um, a potential uh, drug therapy or something like that. All of a sudden, these biorepositories that were under the research departments, now they cap it include has begun to include the biorepository labs as a, a, an area they inspect now. So uh, now the, the personnel that works in the biorepository uh, labs have to be ASCP certified. So it's just, you know, it's just one more thing that is really brought attention to the importance of the anatomical pathology, surgical pathology discipline. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and you're right, biobanking, uh, that's very, that's very important these days. And I know, it, especially now with, you know, with, with the pandemic, there's a lot of research happening. Yes, uh, absolutely. From, from COVID-19 and infected patients. Yeah. Do you, like encourage your students to get involved with, uh, you know, NSH and ASCP. Is that something you talk about it? Yes. Yeah. So, so our program is what we call a two plus two program. We admit uh, juniors uh, in a four, you know, so they do their first two years in a two-year college and they transfer to our university, which is housed at okay. MD Anderson uh, to finish their last two years and finish their bachelor of science degree. So they have a junior year and a senior year. The junior year is a basic science year in which all five of the uh, laboratory sciences take the uh, 3,000 level basic science courses, you know, like uh, medical microbiology, pathophysiology, immunology and genetics and all the in basic lab techniques. Now they're also doing an intro to molecular genetic techniques because of the overlap of all the disciplines now. And so they do that their first year, their junior year, and then their well, the, the fourth year is the professional year. So that's when they break out to their individual programs that they were accepted into, and they have 12 months of student lab and clinical rotation training, inclusive of the didactic courses as well. So when our juniors come on board, they're, they're admitted. We take about 15 juniors every year so. Uh, we have an average of 30 students enrolled in our program, both uh, between the, the juniors and the seniors. So we we have them join 
uh, NSH, and also ASCP. ASCP is a free membership, so that's it's really generous of ASCP to do that. And NSH, uh, they have also tailored their membership where there's a little bit of money, but you get a lot of bang for the buck, so to speak. You can have access to the, the NSH portal to uh, get all the teaching and educational resources and access to scholarships. If you want to be a member and pay just a little bit more money, you can have access to the Lab CE program, which is a it's an online review of the uh, HTL uh, certification exam. So it's it's really good that the students see that they have these national organizations that they belong to, and so they have a sense of belonging to a profession before they even graduate. Uh, there are very uh, um, intense group of young people that are, are very interested in, in making sure that they learn all the techniques very well, and they're very interested in the, the becoming leadership or going on to more advanced practices in histopathology, such as um, pathology assistant. In fact, I usually have usually two to three students who graduate from my histo program and they go right into a pathology assistant program. I really like to see that. And, and in fact, I'm, I'm working with some, some of the programs to create a, a dual admission track where uh, when they're accepted, they can be accepted into both our program. And then if they keep their grades up and graduate from our program, they just walk into the pathology assistant program. So I really think that the dual degree HTLPA uh, track is very popular. It's a very popular track. When histotechs go into a pathology assistant program, they don't have to deal with the shock factor of seeing human tissue or seeing uh, a severed limb or a cadaver. They, they've seen this already. And so they can jump right into the didactic and laboratory curriculum without having to go through that adjustment. Whereas, and I'm not saying anything bad about folks who go from a uh, BS in biology from a university into a pathology assistant program, I'm not saying anything about that, but they have to go through a couple months of getting used to huh, smelling formalin and seeing organs and severed limbs and cadavers. You know, they have to, they have a period of adjustment, whereas histotechs, they go in you know, hit, they hit the ground running. Yeah, I agree. It do, it definitely does seem like a like a natural progression there. And you're right about the younger younger people, the the students and the you know recent graduates. I mean, we're seeing that with with AAPA as well. A lot of the pathologist assistant students right, and the recent yeah. grads, they're very passionate about uh, field, very passionate about their jobs, yes. and it's it's great to see. And ASCP, I'll have to say something about ASCP too. For the last 10 years, they've been very good at um, developing talent in the under 40 age crowd. You know, so they have, they have a, I forgot what they called exactly, but there, there's some. Um, oh, the, uh, the, the 40 under 40. Yeah, the under 40 group. And so that is, you know, that was something ASCP recognized 10 years ago that one of the things that was lacking among the laboratory professionals that were coming out was that there was not a really good mentoring program for the under 40 crowd. You know, that included all the lab disciplines and even the, uh, the pathology residents and fellows as well. You know, and that aspect of the profession was missing and ASCP came in and really filled in that, that gap. You've co-authored uh, a few papers uh, on uh, improving tissue fixation in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in, in uh, for breast cancer. Right. Can you can you tell me a little bit about this research? I imagine ha have you been to to Africa? Is that where you where you did this, or how did that how did that work? Yeah. So um, uh, MD Anderson has a, a committee. It's the um, a global academic program in Africa. They also have another group called the Sister Institution. Fund where they uh, collaborate with uh, cancer hospitals, oncology okay. centers throughout the world, talking with people with uh, the World Health Organization and the Union for International 
Cancer Control, UICC, and other organizations like that. You know, we the uh, we had the executive leaderships that first uh, talked with these folks at these organizations, and they found out that there was a real need to bring cancer care, oncology care, to Africa because up until 2012, the WHO's position on on cancer in Africa was to just uh, give them pain mm. uh, management and sure. not much mm. treatment. So that was a real concern uh, with uh, MD Anderson's mission on uh, trying to uh, bring cancer care to not only the United, uh, Texas, uh, United States, but also worldwide. We started out as a group of about 20 people on this committee, and now there's probably a couple hundred on this committee. And one of our first objectives, there was three countries. It was Zambia, Tanzania, and Mozambique, and then later on Ethiopia. Our first venture was one of my, that I was involved in was to Lusaka, Zambia at the Cancer Disease Center. And we first went over there and did just a site visit to look at their facilities, to uh, just kind of, you know, look, at, look around and see uh, do an assessment. There was a sub team on that committee. It was myself. And then there was uh, Dr. Mary Edgerton. She's a breast pathologist. And then Dr. Uh, Sean Black. She's a uh, surgical oncologist. And uh, we went back and we had, we gave uh, workshops for about three years in a row. And as we were giving workshops to teach the proper way to, you know, timestamp the breast mastectomy specimen into fixative and then go, we took it through the whole process of uh, grossing it and pro, you know, fixation and processing. And then we also did, uh, we taught them immunohistochemistry as well. So this was a, a QA effort on our part to come in and help them improve the turnaround time of their cases. So it's kind of a unique situation in Zambia in which when a person has surgery there, what happens is, is whatever you're having removed, it doesn't matter if, you know, whatever it is, the surgery department gives back to the patient their specimens. And then they decide whether they want it to have a pathological examination of it. So it's because they have to pay out of pocket. And in some cases, the cancer disease center was a government hospital. So there, it was a little more streamlined in which the patients would just give permission to have their tissues examined. So, but, but they also, you know, have to pay sometimes if they go to a private hospital. So what it was normally taking to, you know, if there was a radical mastectomy performed, uh, before they could get all the workup on the case and immunohistochemistry and things like that, it would take about three months before they had a diagnosis. Wow. Most of these cases we're already at stage three, stage four, stage three, and stage four. And so, you know, it was just a real shame that the pathology workup could be done faster on, uh, you know, especially stage three, where you could have some, you know, intervention in, you know, in neoadjuvant therapy to help these folks uh, recover. It was our goal to go back there and show them how to, through quality assurance, um, techniques uh, to turn around the case in three days. From the time it was removed, the, the breast specimen, uh, we would timestamp it and gross it and get it into fixative. And we put it, we leave it in fixative for at least 24 hours because we were going to do ERPR and HER2 new biomarkers on it. And so, you know, as the studies have shown, uh, dating back to 2006, it's so critical for breast specimens to get to be well fixed for immunohistochemistry uh, assays for you to have a good outcome. But we were also helping them with the logistical aspects of it. Because one of the things that's uh, very difficult to come by in Zambia are the IHC uh, reagents, you know, the primary antibodies and all the, uh, the supporting secondary uh, reagents that you use in the immunohistochemistry technique. So we helped them establish an account in the United States with a vendor to so they could you know call and set up an account so they could order the reagents. 
But one of the stumbling blocks we ran into was is that Zambia has a very strict uh, foreign currency law. So, and the way, and the reason, uh, you know, that's their way of encouraging vendors to move to Zambia to keep the currency in the country. But it's very difficult for that to occur because, you know, um, there's only two or three pathologists in a country of 30 million people. Wow. So from the aspect of a vendor, right, they don't think there's much of a market there because there's so it's kind of a small rate of, you know, the immunohistochemistry tests that are going to be ordered because there's only three pathologists for the whole country. One of the things that we added to the QA project that we had, that we had implemented is we decided to do a case study. Uh, we wanted to do a comparison of um, triple negative breast cancer cases in Zambia compared to African-American women in the United States. And so we actually got a grant to study that. We, we, got some, we have some interesting results, but um, you know, we, we still didn't have enough volume of patients to really make a conclusive decision on a good comparison between triple negative breast cancer cases. And, and so there's a lot of factors that goes into these uh, studies that we do overseas in Africa is because of the, the volume of cases that we're, we're dealing with there. They do have, though, uh, in Zambia, they do have quite a few people that are trained in uh, histotechnology. Uh, so what they do have over there, it's kind of, it's a little different than over here. It's kind of reminds me of the United Kingdom and the way they train laboratorians is that they, it's multidiscipline program where they go through a medical technology rotation, histotechnology rotation, and cytotechnology rotation. They, so what ended up happening is, is when you went, when students would go through those programs, they would eventually end up in a subspecialty in which they found the most interesting. So they, they did have the personnel in Zambia, but um, the, the main thing that kept them from improving the techniques was the, uh, the foreign currency rule of getting new, ordering new equipment and it being delivered in, into Africa and also the reagents. So most of the equipment that they would get would be from India. And India and China, I would also say China. But what I found with the equipment in Zambia was that a lot of it was, you know, you, you looked at the instrument and it looked, you know, it looked like, oh, I've seen this. This looks like a certain, you know, like a Leica brand or whatever. But what okay. it was, it was a, it was a clone of a certain instrument uh, like Sakura or Leica or what are those cases uh, that was made in India or China. It, it, with Africa, I'll just make a general final comment. In Africa, the thing is there is that they, a lot of these hospitals and, and cancer centers over there, they really do need primary sponsors from the West, like Europe, uh, United States, um, uh, with sponsoring them in regards to continuing education, a maintenance program for their instruments, reagent programs and things like that to make it a sustainable uh, surgical pathology program in these countries. I, I like to put links in the show notes for my episodes of, of things that we talked about, and I will definitely link uh, to some of, some of your uh, articles and some, some of the other things about your experiences in Africa. So I've had the pleasure to travel to Zambia. That's where I spent most of my time. I did a couple of trips to Ethiopia as well and did, uh, did a site visit in Ghana as well. So the, the first thing that we did is always did site visits to assess what they had. And then if we had the budget in or grants, we would go back and do workshops. You know, you mentioned earlier the Union for International Cancer Control. And I know, I, I think it was yes. last year at the ASCP meeting, there was a keynote's uh, I think she was the president of the UICC. She spoke about that organization, and I know mm -hmm. you're in, involved with it too. Can you can you tell me a little bit about the UICC? Yeah, well, UICC. I I, I spent a little time working with them. In fact, one of the first trips that we uh, took to Lusaka, Zambia, we had a member of the the UICC uh, team with us, and we had a member from NIH International Oncology branch or division. And then we had somebody from WHO 
And then we had colleagues from Amsterdam and also South Africa. Because uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, they they do uh, most of your medical doctors are trained in, in throughout the continent of Africa, go to South Africa or India to receive their medical degrees or also Western Europe. Uh, but you do get a lot of uh, the, the pathologists that come from the uh, university uh, in South in Cape Town, South Africa. It was good that we had those representatives from those international groups with us on those trips to see what we were going through uh, on our site visits. And then we would give them reports of how it was going. You know, they would take back the information back to their group and, and report to their um, leadership. And that collaboration is really, really important because so what we lack as far as the international experience that those groups have, you know, we, we have the competencies as far as the pathology and the technical competencies, but we lack kind of a world perspective of how the diplomacy and politics of going into these countries is like. Mm-hmm. That's where UIC and WHO come in and help us with that part. You know, they're very supportive. They work with us. I, I was able to attend uh, the UICC conference in Paris a couple of years ago, and I presented my fixation paper to that group. One of their missions is to place uh, medical students or first-year residents that come that that uh, go to medical school in Africa or India that that live in Africa to place them in like a summer three-month program uh, in Europe. And so I, I was able to help on that committee a little bit uh, vet these candidates who applied for fellowship training. In some of these, uh, in some of the university uh, medical centers in uh, London, and that was a really nice experience. The work that UICC is doing, uh, and I know they're they're kind of partners w- with ASCP now. It, it's very fascinating, and it's mm-hmm. yes, it's really important work that you're doing. I think it's I think it's great. Yes, I think there there's a um, the pathologist Dr. Dan Milner at ASCP. Yeah. He's the I believe he's still there. He's the, the director, I believe, of the global academic programs. They have a really good uh, program there that they've been able to collectively collaborate with all these different groups because there's so many moving parts with this. And ASCP, I would say, is one of the uh, top organizations that has really done a great job in organizing the pathology efforts in Africa. And then I also want to say Brigham Women's hospital as well. They were one of the first ones uh, prior to ASCP, prior to MD Anderson, that went over to, uh, I believe, Rwanda and did a lot of work there, uh, especially during the early days of the PEPFAR funding uh, with the Clinton-Bush initiative. And another another group, uh, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in, uh, in uh, Washington State, uh, they actually, I believe, built a cancer center in Ghana, and so in um, in Accra, Accra, Ghana. And collaborating is the key, you know, in, in getting these endeavors completed over there in Africa. And it's always going to be a challenge in Africa because of the, you know, the the long distance it is to travel over there, and and the restrictions of the the uh, ministries of health, and then, you know, you have the, the, the instability in some of the governments over there. But histotechnology has changed a lot over the years, uh, even just in the uh, equipment alone. What are some of the biggest changes, changes that you've seen, and how, how do you think it's going to change even, even more in the future? That, that's a very good question, Dennis. It's, it's very difficult to um, say one particular thing, but what I do see is one of the major changes is that the the younger generation of pathologists that are uh, being trained, uh, we're moving towards digital pathology, and uh, more you know more and more cases are being reviewed on digital pathology platforms. And of course, FDA is still asking certain comprehensive cancer centers to validate these systems. So. Once the FDA validates, you know, make sure that all these digital platforms are validated, 
One of the primary roles that I see ISO technologists becoming experts in will be the management of the data that's going to be generated from all these images that are going to be uploaded into cloud systems. Once the, the green light is given to where a pathologist can work, from, work remotely signing out cases, similar to like the radiologist, uh, I, I think you'll see a big push for histotechnologists uh, not only uh, learning a lot of uh, digital pathology operations, but there'll be a push for technologists to be uh, receiving degrees in information system technology. And I mean, there's there's probably going to be all kinds of different types of educational programs that are, are going to be created to meet the demand of this. It's just almost incomprehensible the the amount of data that's going to be required in the, the, the data space, the cloud spaces that are going to be required to house all these images. And as you know, you're, there's going to be just rooms uh, with lots of the digital platform scanning instruments that will be able to scan slides at different uh, focal points and rapidly. So once the algorithms are all put into place where you have multifocal rapid imaging of these slides, I think that the digital pathology world is just going to explode. And uh, we're, we're just now starting to see that. And I also feel that uh, with the uh, molecular genetic technology and the uh, biorepository uh, labs that are, that are being established, I, I think there's going to be a, a multi-role a uh, histotechnologist that's going to have to have uh, skill sets in all these different areas, inclusive of the routine histological techniques as well. Uh, you know, you're just going to have to be multi-skilled in, in different avenues to meet the demands of this. And, and I also feel that uh, the, the younger generation of pathologists are going to expect the histotechnologists to become familiar with more complexity testing and learn to do a little bit of um, uh, post-analytical uh, analysis of uh, perhaps uh, some images. Uh, I know that cytotechnologists and the pathology assistants have all been talking about this, you know, about uh, the potential screening of uh, of cases, you know. Um, in, the, yeah. in the case of the histotechnologist, I, I think that when it comes to uh, especially like chromogenic and situ hybridization uh, technique and perhaps even some fish technology to, to have histotechs to do some preliminary screening, you know, uh, and, and so, but, you know, you can talk about these grand plans, but what it boils down to is what is going to be on the certification exam. So most of your educators are only going to kind of like, you know, for, you know, uh, forgive me on the cliche, but basically, you know, you're teaching to the test, so to speak, so that your, your graduates will passed the certification exam on the first attempt. But I think that if, if we want to advance this to technologists as far as uh, uh, them having a, you know more uh, increase in pay, increase in um, a career ladder, if, if they don't want to go into pathology assistant, you know, uh, you know, you're going to have to also uh, begin to develop curriculum that's going to address digital pathology. Uh, needs, uh, biorepository, all these different new technologies and new uh, requirements uh, that are uh, conducive for the advancement of surgical pathology. That's where I see us going. And so is this going to be some type of multi-certification model? Uh, perhaps. Um, I think definitely that the, the, the more certifications that uh, a person holds, in multidiscipline areas, they'll be much more marketable. They'll have uh, they'll be able to negotiate salary more. So it, it really depends on a couple, you know, the education available and also the board of certification if they want to. Uh, the committees that write these exams, if they're going to include these curriculum curricular items that I've talked about, 
but I see the I see this trend happening. You know, uh, with the um, the expectation from the surgical pathologist in that the technical team uh, is is going to be expected to know uh, these different um, advanced complexity techniques. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think we're at the just at the beginning of a lot of those new technologies, and I see the entire field of surgical pathology expanding. Right. Mark, this has been great. It's very interesting, and I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It was my pleasure. And uh, uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I really uh, enjoy being able to speak to uh, the surgical pathology professionals uh, in all different areas of that discipline. Great big thank you to Mark Bailey. Now, like I said in the episode, there are links in the show notes to all of the things we talked about today. You can find those at the website. That's peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Also, you can follow the show on Twitter at peopleofpath. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. If you know someone who might be interested in a career in histotechnology, share this episode with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. <music>